Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, hello, sir. Scott, it's been too long. It has. Apologies to our listeners that we've been, we've, I was on vacation a little bit. You've been yeah, traveling so. and working on your, I, I was going to say magnum opus, but it's really a minimum specificus opus. <laughs> like you're giving a TED talk, which is like this incredible, like thing in our culture. Like, you know, mm. every, like, and yet it's also oh, like, now you're stressing me out. Yeah. Like, it, <laughs> but it's a weird thing to do, right? It's, it's, it's cool. And you know, it, it's awesome. And you're in with this place with all these interesting, cool people. And yet you've got to sort of like distill something into 20 minutes and it's just it's like this awesome experience and yet on the other side of it, it probably feels like a really peculiar experience <laughs> well i i mean i i like what uh what you were saying earlier kind of uh while we were still off air um that you know there's something similar to your experience of preparing a sermon each week in that you know you've got all these ideas swimming around in your head and you know you want to you want to honor the complexity of them but if you if you try to communicate it all then um it 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 it's the 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 meaning that you want people to take away is easily lost and so you need to you need to in some ways simplify uh in order to be effective um and therefore you end up in this you know yourself an awkward relationship with the truth where you know as you put it that you you preach a heresy each week yeah absolutely yeah yeah you say something that seems unbalanced and this is where i think the Hegelian stuff helps me in that, like, if truth is in the contradictions, they're not problems so much as prisms and invitations. That, well, mm. the the this thing which seems unbalanced really gives way to something fuller, and so you know, the, the actually somehow the the more particular and specific will ultimately contribute to a picture of the whole that you can't do in any given moment. Mm. At least I hope that. I hope Adorno's not right where he says, like Hegel says, right that. The truth is the whole, and I think Adorno says the whole is a myth. So if Adorno's right, then, you know, mm, mm. I want to pack up and go home. But <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just going to say Adorno's wrong. And, uh, you know, like me being me, you know, never never want to shy away from an intellectual challenge. So, you know, rather than accept their invitation to talk about, you know, some of the topics that I've researched and written and talked a lot about over the last few years i you know we kind of had a conversation which went like well you know can 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 we do something new because that would be more interesting for me um and uh, and so we mutually decided yeah well you know why don't why don't you get up on stage and give us your answer to uh, the crisis of truth in, in our society today and 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 social media and fake news and all of that uh and i thought yeah okay that's you know that's a good that's a good summer project so <laughs> Yeah, well, it's timely. I mean, this is the thing that's great about that, right? It's timely. And I mean, it's like why we do this podcast, right? I mean, some of it is like a combination of like the 500,000 feet above and yet connected to things that are very much on the ground. And that's mm -hmm. sort of like your DNA and who you are. And so mm -hmm. it's like a, I mean, that's, that's in your bones, you know, like there's no surprise that you would like to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess that's right. And, you know, I like what you said, kind of, you know, something Hegelian about, you know, the truth being in the contradiction. And, and I feel like that was just my bias going, going into it is, well, okay, if I, if I'm going to kind of 
explore the question of just what's going what's going wrong in society and and what is this pandora's box that social media has opened up for us um where my mind immediately went is you know i just think it's more interesting to explore the counterintuitive which is that actually all this stuff is a good thing that social media and the transition from a mass media to a social media age is fundamentally a good thing and and we're probably and 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 and, and so to explore what is the truth of that? Where is the truth in that contrarian view? And 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 I think that you know I, I got to really interesting you know just I guess for myself some realizations about how how much we are growing, um, how much more self aware we have the opportunity to become as a society about what our relationship with truth has been and is and could be as a result of the advent of social media. Uh, and so, so that, that's where my headspace is at, at the moment. Uh, yeah. I, well, I don't know. You've, you've, you've now, you're one of the two people in the world or three who've, who've seen my, my kind of latest draft on it. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. Do you think, am I succeeding at my project? Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because you, you talk about that. You, there's this one line you say that I love. You say like, I don't blame the medium. I don't blame the lies. I blame our truths. And I, I, I was thinking about that because it, it took me to this. Harry Frankfurt, who wrote that great little book on bullshit, then he followed up with a monograph called On the Truth, talks about truth possesses an instrumental value when it's taken in separate pieces. Like individual truths are useful, right, for certain things like, you know, for engineering or for uh, elasticity of materials or, you know, whatever, anybody. So he talks about the difference between uh, how you can um, you can care about like truths and discrete facts without caring about factuality or the truth itself. And so you can actually take a truth, right? A discrete truth or fact, right? And use it in a story, you know, the way like, you know, you could be an engineer and or a, a phys- like a physician and use a truth, right? To heal a patient or strengthen a bridge and not care about factuality in general or the truth in general um, in that moment or in general. But he thinks everybody can do this. Everybody can be thinking about, okay, I could pull out this gaffe or this statistic or this discrete thing, right? And use it for my story, my tribe, that kind of thing. And and the thing is that it's not, what, what what's compelling about it is that Oftentimes there might be some truthiness to whatever you're saying. It's mm. not complete. It's not completely absurd, right? Mm. You're not saying the moon is made out of cream cheese or something, but you're saying something that is using a truth, a discrete truth, to cover up the truth or a specific fact mm. to obscure what's act- factuality. Mm. <laughs> and I think that's part of what you're talking about. People sense that that in in this in this media age, oftentimes. Things are oversimplified. Things, you know, truth becomes uh, something that we use, right? Like, uh, you know, not something that we think is a higher good, like the the good or the beautiful, bigger than ourselves. And so, it's often what we say is the truth that's more harmful than the media, the the, the medium, the social media, or the lies. <laughs> it's what we say. Well, this study on climate change is true, or this about gun control, or this or that. That one truth. Right, that 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 actually we used to, as a club to beat somebody else or to hmm. or to sort of troll somebody on social media. That kind of becomes the problem: our commitment to truths hmm. or facts, and not the truth and factuality. Hmm. 
So that's really interesting because, you know, you talk about, you know, we, we say something and there's a, an element of truthiness to it. And, and so one of the things I spent a lot of time reflecting upon in terms of, you know, how has social media been helpful is I think in exposing, um, don't know how to say this, exposing what happens when we simplify the truth. And, and, and saying that actually, you know, our practice of simplifying the truth is really a practice from the mass media age. I mean, that was when, I mean, we've been sort of humanity's been sort of twisting truth for our purposes sort of ever since, I guess, you know, cave people days. But, but it was in the, it was in the age of mass media in the industrial age when like so many other things, we turned that craft into an industry and manufacturing truth, right? Like public relations, propaganda, advertising, it, it became, Truth became something cheap and plentiful. And, 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 you know, there are small examples of that, like, you know, cigarettes are slimming. Uh, and there are big examples of that, like globalization is a good thing. And, and each of those is basically taking, like, you know, there is probably some big truth in there or some possible aspect of truth. I mean, having a practice of smoking cigarettes maybe means that you don't eat as well. And so, anyway, not to go down that rabbit hole. But what happens when we simplify truth? You know, every time we reduce the full truth into something simpler, we, we are committing a lie of omission, right? And, and so, and then this is what's interesting about social media is that in the mass media age, those omissions weren't a problem because everything we omitted from the broadcast was voiceless and powerless, right? It had no voice. So it had no reality. But in the social media age, each of those omissions finds a voice. Right? Each of those omissions is someone's chance to gain followers, to gain legitimacy by calling it out. And, and and to decide that whatever the big message is, um, isn't their truth. And 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 so I think that what 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 social media has really helped to expose is how you know these simple truths that we transact in can be self defeating. That because we are willing to kind of simplify the truth, we make it possible for everyone who doesn't want to share in it to have their own contrary truthiness. Because you didn't say that, you know, yeah, immigration is a good thing. But, you you know, you really look at it. There are all these consequences and all these questions that just haven't been considered, that haven't been heard. And that's my truth. Yeah, there's and, there's going to be stuff. That, there's downsides, big downsides. That, that This is what you talk about in the age of discovery, right? The challenges of how do you make all these gains in the aggregate, right? Actual gains for more particular people. And so you can say to people, this is great for everybody, really. Well, on the aggregate, probably, but that everybody includes people. Mm, right. <laughs> what do they say? If, people if, for whom it isn't if, a great thing. Right. If your neighbor lost their job, it's a recession. If you lost your job, it's a depression. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I mean, that kind of, I mean, I think that's the, it's interesting too mm. that, that, that example use of globalization is great. And, and this uh, guy I interviewed Michael Lynch for this book, Know It All Society, and he talks about, he actually says, you know, what if we use instead of emoticons, like, you know, smiley face, poop emoji, whatever. If we, if we replaced it in social media, like with on, about news and everything, you know, these news stories we see in our Facebook or Twitter feeds, what if instead of like, or not, you know, or emojis we had justifiable by the evidence, not justifiable by the evidence or need more information. <laughs> so he's out drinking one night, right? You're giggling, right? He's out drinking one night with some big, like Google, Facebook type executives at some conference. And he says that to them and they're just all surprised. <laughs> That's amazing. Come here. Come here. They're calling guys. Say that again. Say that again. Thinking it was a joke. And he's like, oh, I mean, I was kind of serious. But then he's like, what I realized, he's, A, he thought 
they just thought it was I was cute and naive and and then he saw on a deeper level what they understood is if we did that those categories would just become new emojis like need more justified by the evidence not justified by the evidence or or need more information would just become like not like or I don't care so they wouldn't it just talks about how you know certain ethical theorists think that ethics are really just emotivist expressions like. When I say uh, a death, I don't like the death penalty. I just, I'm really saying, ew, you know, like, and he's saying, you know, you could, you could quibble about whether that theory is, is a good philosophical theory, but he's like, that's definitely how we engage in, in the social media age. Oftentimes when we like something or comment, we're not saying, wow, this evidentially, if you weigh all the things is true with a capital T, we're saying, I like it. Yay team. Or I don't like it or boo to that team. Or I don't care. Like I'm not, you know, it's just, it doesn't make me feel any particular way. And so that I think part of the pushback, right, on something like globalization is is a good thing, right? And you're saying when you don't qualify, somebody feels marginalized by that truth, and counter and with counterfactuals or things like that, become angry and say, "I want to be heard." Like I feel marginalized and insignificant, right? And and this sort of and use truths or or facts with small t or f, you know, that have truthiness as a means of emotional expression. And to feel seen and feel important. Mm. And I think that, you know, it's, I think that we, we probably developed that habit much earlier than the social media age, which is to say that, you know, those who possess truth are important, have power, that it's possible to possess truth. I mean, we, 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 we did it to ourselves through decades. You know, you put, you put people up, you dress them up, you put them on a stage, you give them a microphone, you give them a column and, and we say what those people say is true and power flows to those messengers. And so, and so now suddenly we all have access to uh, the microphone, to, to be a, a newspaper column, to, to be a television station. And, and, and we're, you know, we're all implementing the model that we've learned, which is that here, that, that there is a formula for manufacturing truth. And the formula is this, take any message you like, um, you know, uh, Wrap it up in expert opinion, you know, pump it full of numbers and statistics, and then just say it again and again and again and again, and it becomes something true, or at least true enough to persuade people to believe it. And then, you know, then, then, then the kind of the power and influence and wealth that comes from people believing your, your truth flows to you. So, you know, that, that formula isn't new. Uh, and, and we've all learned it. And now we all have the opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to cook up truths in our own basements. And so I, I, I get it. I, I, I get this point about the, you know, the emoticon. So really what happened is, um, you know, we, we grew up on the idea that truth is something that gets sold, not something that you search for. Uh, and now we all have the mechanisms to, to sell it. And so we're all doing it. What's, what, what's interesting is, you know, you think about, you know, sort of the philosophical truth, like beauty and the good and these, these ideals that we, that we aim for. And I think that the, the philosophical role of truth is to be something that brings us together. Yep. Right. There's this thing for us to search for it. And, and we need each other if we want to glimpse it because I am, I am trapped in my own perspective. And so I can only see a part and I need to get out of, uh, without you, I can't get outside of myself. And so the truth is something that we search for together. But if we all have truth, then there's nothing, there's no common project to bring us together anymore in that search. And, and, and ironically, this thing that was supposed to bring us together, now it divides us. I have my truth 
and and you have yours. And the fact that now everyone has the opportunity to to sell their truths just means that we've become that much more divided. This is exactly this is that's the conclusion of Harry Frankfurt's book on the truth. He talks about how we only learn who we are and that we're limited by th- by obstacles that come up against us in childhood and through maturation, you know, all the way from infanthood into you know, infancy into adulthood. He says, thus, our recognition and understanding of our own identity arises out of and depends integrally on our appreciation of a reality that is definitively, definitively independent of ourselves. In other words, it arises out of and depends on our recognition that there are facts and truths over which we cannot hope to exercise direct or immediate control. If there were no such facts or truths, if the world invariably, un- unresistingly, became whatever we might like it or wish it to be, we would be unable to distinguish ourselves from what is other than ourselves, and we would have no sense of what in particular we ourselves are. It is only through our recognition of a world stubbornly, of, of a world of stubbornly independent reality, fact and truth, that we come both to recognize ourselves as beings distinct from others and to articulate the specific nature of our own identities. How then can we fail to take the importance of factuality and of reality seriously? How can we fail to care about truth? We cannot. So, so can I just, I love that. And I would love to have that conversation with Michael. My, my immediate experience, you know, like preparing a Ted talk and going to yeah. the reviewers, they would just like, look at that and like, dude, you still got to simplify that. down, <laughs> Right. No, but I think what he's saying is like, dude, if you see a person that's a complete dick or that just can't fall in love, you know, or can't really, or can't really be in a vulnerable mm. relationship mm. or can't think about consequences of a business action. Uh, they, you know, maybe like a real estate developer in New York that lies and becomes president. <laughs> but I mean, you see somebody that is so narcissistic, right? Mm. That they can't function in human society in any decent way, respect, regardless of their politics or their, what they say their commitments are. It's because they never really got the fact that there's something bigger than themselves, that they never, Yielded to the fact that, hey, I can't ha- just have my cake and eat, and eat it too, whatever I want, whatever. And so part of like uh, the, the need for like truth with a capital T is the need, you know, without it, there's not love with a capital L or decency with a capital D or anything like that. This the, this sense that, hey, reality's bigger than me is what enables me uh, not to think less of myself, but to think of myself less like, <laughs> you know, to, to, to actually see that there's a world outside mm. me that that should have that I that I should have some regard for. So here's something interesting. And this is this is more, you know, in the speculative part of what I talk about in my TED talk and what I think about. But it's informed by my experience having spent a decade in China and kind of studying how does you know how does how does the biggest society in in, in on the planet manage to generate and maintain the simplest truths. And and so I think there is – so there is a kind of like almost like a personal psychology to the crisis of truth, right? Like, do we have the humility or do we have the arrogance um, to, to search for truth or to believe that we possess it? But I think that there is also something, something broader and something structural in society, which is kind of – are there enough real and distinctive projects of searching for, for truth – out there, such that there is a kind of wide and interesting base to stand on to look for it. You know, it's, and I, I don't know if I have a great example to articulate it, except, you know, so I'm trying to, you know, how many up. Twitter threads that are burning up 
are burning up because people are like, that's a great question. Can we get, can anybody give us more data on this? Or, yeah, right. I, that's it's really, actually, there's yeah. a big gap in this discussion of gun control and neither of us seem to have the whole picture. Does anybody else have some more studies? No, it's just hmm. flame, flamethrower, mocktail cocktail. It's not the ones that get a lot of energy are not people asking each other for a, a, a greater picture of the whole. There are people that are saying, we've got it. They don't. Let's, but let's, let's throw a flamethrower at them. You know, like, I mean, how many, <laughs> this is just how, like, the, again, it's, it's the fact that, of course, we're all, um, self-interested people since the beginning of the species, right? And it can be selfish and can instrumentalize truth. But, but I think that the me, what the medium does is it makes it a lot easier, right? It, there's, there's fewer checks, right? So, so I think there's an invitation in it to like actually become more reflective, mm. but then there's a danger to it because it also could just send us down the Maltov cocktail route. Right, right, right. But I, I guess where I want to add to that is I think that there's something deeper than the medium. There's something about almost, mm, uh, how can I articulate it? Like what, what is all, what are almost like valid things to bring onto the table and say, Hey, we need to complicate this picture. Right. Let me quote you to you. Okay. Separation of proof. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so it, yeah. It, Let it, me so, quote you to you. Chris. <laughs> well, so yeah. So intellectually, I think that this is interesting. Like, it, so it makes sense to me that, you know, we have, everybody gets the idea of separation of powers. Right, free society. You need to separate executive, legislature, judiciary, and the idea is that you don't want any one authority to be able to say what is right. You know, is that we can only say what is right when different authorities work together. And, and I suspect it's the same with truth. Right, we need to separate the proofs so that no one perspective gets to say what's true. And you know, and what do I mean by proofs? It's you know, there are scientific proofs and economic and cultural, historical, philosophical, spiritual. Right, some of these. Are, are, are like organized searches with their own rules for what counts as proof to them, like journalism, right? Or, or academic research or, you know, or maybe, maybe you'd say religion or even political parties. Um, but, you know, and, and, and again, I'm coming, where I'm coming from with this is living in China where, you know, in order to maintain uh, simple truths, it, it's not like censorship is kind of like the, you know, is the is the very end of the process. It begins with, um, you know, with 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 the academy and what you can publish. It it begins with you know literature and 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 topics you can write about and 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 film and radio and music and and things that you can say on talk radio. Like there is a whole at, from for, at the at the kind of the basic origin of where ideas come from. There is yeah, a yeah, simplification yeah. so that if I am living in that society and I want to, and I want to be, you know, a critical thinker, I just, it's like, I can't get outside. Of yeah, the like Brexit, that I'm Brexit in. you know, Brexit's a great example, right? The first guy who, or first prime minister who was a male guy who lost, you know, I don't know how many prime ministers this thing's going to kill. It may be number three, but David Cameron, it's first, uh, child sacrificed on the altar here he was against brexit right i mean he was he was uh he did not want to leave the european union now the church of england was certainly not pro brexit people at oxford at oxbridge you know <laughs> certainly weren't against it scientists economists like all these people i'm sure most of the mainstream media bbc i'm sure it was hard to find like so it's amazing to the to the watching world well 
how could all these people vote against what all the uh, people that are dressed up in, in the robes of intellectual respectability and power? Mm. They were all they all said it's true. Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. So so there is something. So I guess I think, you know, we talk about so, you know, this narcissism and how certain we've all become of the truths that we each possess. Right. And, and I actually I think there's a deep relationship between between that certainty that we all feel in our truths in our truths and how how same how how kind of incestuous our proofs have become i mean i think that you know when you know so what like when money is given the same protections as speech in our in our politics you know when ad dollars determine what journalists report uh you know academic research and, and the autonomy of the academy is compromised by um you know the the vested interests of the companies and politicians who are funding the research um you know, but but deeper things like epistemically, when anything that we can't quantify and measure is kind of ignored from the decision making because it's not real enough. You know, each of these things, I think, sort of reduces the space between our projects of finding truth in society. And 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 so I think, therefore, as a result, it's just like whatever the medium, the 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 truths that are being generated are going to be are going to be simpler are going to lack the 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 richness and the complexity that they could possess and so it's going to be easier to feel certainty and it's going to be harder to be challenged and i and, and i think that you know so you talk about like you know brexit or you talk about globalization i think that those are examples of it i mean globalization you know is a good thing because there was this like economic certainty around this kind of macroeconomic argument. And there, was, there wasn't real competition from just other aspects of reality to challenge that economic truth because you know, money, economics, it was, is, is so strong in our understanding of what's real. And so many other things, whether it's you know, the potential for environmental degradation or you know, the political questions of you know, how are we going to um, sort out, uh, you know, winners and losers and, and how each is compensated or, or just, you know, deep philosophical questions about like what, what changes when we strip down the barriers between people in the world and, 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 you know, what is the philosophical project that thinks that's a good thing? And what is the project that thinks it's a bad thing? And which do we want? You know, yeah, on the margins, there were people asking those questions, but they were on the margins. Right there, there, there is this very unequal search for truth underway that I think means that you know some viewpoints are dominant and 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 therefore sort of you know the social conversation is is um, is oversimplified. Yeah, there's a 19th century Dutch thinker Abraham Kuyper who was he was prime minister of the Netherlands, but he was a Christian theologian and he started this Christian Democratic Party in the Netherlands, but his big, one of his big ideas was sphere sovereignty. And he thought that, well, God has created all these spheres for education, for family and procreation, for agriculture, art, economics, worship, labor, all these things. And he thought that these spheres shouldn't be dominant over the other. Mm. It's like the church shouldn't tell the business sphere like how to do things, and business shouldn't try to instrumentalize religion or art and or the family. And, and he thought what the state should do is is sort of arbitrate, make sure that that no spheres dominated one over the other, that the healthiest sort of society was when 
these spheres had their own integrity and together in a, in a plural sort of relationship, they could, you know, create human flourishing. And I think part of like the Kuiperian thing that, that you're getting at is like this, what happens when one sphere says like economics, like, I mean, this is why everybody loves free economics, the podcast, or I like it. Right. But it's, Hey, let's, let's try to use economics to explain as much of reality as we can. Right. And, and we're getting better and better with numbers and algorithms and things like that. So there, that is interesting. It can do a lot of interesting things. But what happens when we go from descriptive to, to prescriptive? Like, well, numbers are the things that can give us reality. Well, no, they can't. <laughs> but they could give us a lot of great things. But mm. And then people start to feel – I think some of the anti-vax stuff is irrational as it as I think it is in many ways. Like, But I understand emotionally that I, I, I think like – well, who are all these people to tell me exactly what to do with my kids and – you know, what if, you know, I mean, mm. it, it's just, I, I get it. I mean, I can get how you can feel incredibly vulnerable when a person with a white coat says you have to do this, this, and this, right? Mm. And so you, you, I think, so I think you're onto something in that when people feel like, uh, that they feel like objects and not subjects, right? Then mm. they treat the truth like an object, right? Like <laughs> it's just something to be used because mm. they feel like they're being used. Mm. And I think, I mean, this, this then becomes slippery territory, right? Because then one wants to question, well, isn't there a kind of hierarchy to the different ways that we access the real, right? Like, isn't, isn't, well, let me ask, let me ask the preacher a question. Like, isn't scientific proof somehow more real than spiritual proof? I mean, Columbus and, and, and I think that we're struggling with that question right now, right? I think it's like Columbus sailed across the ocean blue in 1492. So what? Like, I think that that's, I mean, I, I'm not being, I'm being crass, but I think people oftentimes, like, we know a lot more than Aristotle knew about his world, right? But we feel much more alienated in it than he did. Because mm. I think that, no, I think scientific truth is amazing. And it, it's amazing for what it can do. The, the problem is it often can't tell us, it can tell us the how questions, but not the why questions. Mm. And then what we do is say the why questions are, that are then inferior to the how and things. And then, so, mm. I mean, I think part of it is, is learning a, a, a careful, mm. I didn't even want to say balance, a careful dance, you know, between all these well, windows and, yeah. on truth and reality. And a collaboration. And I think that that's yeah. also, again, I, I feel like this is, and so this is part of my, you know, I guess the, the thesis that I'm testing is that a lot of these sort of, a lot of our bad relationship with truth is actually more something from the mass media age. Um, and, and I think it wasn't the mass media age that we really got good at selling people truth. And, and, and I mean, and, and, and kind of eroding a culture of collaboration around it, which is to say, yeah, so scientifically we understand this, um, but that's not everything. You know, so okay, like on, on like anti-vac movement, it's like okay, so so here is some science, and and so you're coming at it from a perspective of you know you feel that it's important in your family to have some agency about these things. Oh, you're you're right. Let's explore that, right? I just feel like we have we're so practiced at using the truth as a weapon against each other, and we're just very unpracticed at figuring out well, how could you possibly you know explore with with more with more nuance. And I, I, I don't have a, a good example on the anti-vac movement, but another health-related example that comes to mind is, you know, big healthcare debates now about, you know, exploding costs of, uh, of healthcare, 
And when you dig into, and, and so it becomes a kind of like a, you know, a scientific and a technological problem right away in our, so we need, we need some like new technologies to basically make hospitals cheaper, more efficient, um, you know, help more people with less resources and stuff like that. So, you know, so much in our society, every problem, we think of it as a technological problem, right? And we, we have this material mindset, um, that, that science and technology is going to solve it. But actually, you know, you really explore um, with some of the far-sighted thinkers in healthcare about, well, how do we deal with that problem? And they'll say, well, you know, it's probably actually a cultural problem in the sense that uh, we've completely uh, alienated ourselves from death. That as a culture, we just have um, no capacity anymore to accept death, to dignify death, to have a good death. And we are spending, you know, billions upon billions of dollars in aggregate helping us uh, you know, live three months longer with no regard to quality of life. And and so yeah, yeah, there are there are scientific truths at play there and, and biological truths and what we can do with the body, but there are also personal truths around, you know, what is your own assessment of your well being? Uh, what matters to you? And what kind of choices would you like to make with your life that have just have no reality in in our conversations and in our decision making? Because the science and and the the optimization objective of live as long as we can is just so much more real. Bill Maher in his last monologue, the the sort of op ed piece of his last show at HBO last week, he's like. My hero in the next Democratic debate will be the person that comes up and says, the real crisis in American healthcare is Americans eat shit. <laughs> and, he did this, and he had this picture of a guy who in the early 1900s was the fat guy in the circus. And it's like now he's just he, – he, this, this is the guy that people would wait in line to see at the circus. Now he's just some guy you see in line at Burger King. Mm. Like he, you know, he, it's a, and he was like – you just can't say that, right? And of course, that's not the only problem. But that, but that's something no one will talk about. We just like it's so interesting how it used to be that the 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 manager at the, the the guy who was at the sort of economic top of the ladder, right, was fat, and all the workers were thin. Now, the manager's thin because he can afford organic food and all this stuff, and has time discretionary time for the gym, and the workers are fat because hmm. they have to eat processed food. They don't have so. I mean, hmm. so these are. But I think it's just what you're saying, like these. The, the like the, the, we do have great economic data on healthcare, and we do know a lot about risks and things. But there's also just questions like, what kind of life do we want to live? Like mm. how you know and why? And and that's part that's just like excised from the discussion. Mm. Well, and 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 so to your point, I mean, we've built you know such a a power around you know the doctor in the white coat. To say that, like you, doctor, you you hold the power to judge whether I am healthy or sick, not me, right? I need to go to you for that determination. And and if I feel great, but you tell me I'm not fine, your version of reality wins. And so I think, and and you know, in some ways that makes sense, and in other ways that is just totally bonkers, right? I mean, why why shouldn't it be possible for me to feel well, to have a, a high level of well-being and suffer from a chronic disease at the same time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so that kind of choice making is just completely absent. And, and, and so I'm not surprised then 
that we find ways to rebel, right? That it, and so I think that what is valid is, you know, and, and anti-vac is a really hard example because it's just that there are all of these, um, terrible population consequences of using this as the point of rebellion. But, but what is the, I think what is the truth that's kind of being exposed about that is that is the doctor patient relationship that we've built is not a healthy one, is not an open one, is not one that fully respects that the patient too has, has, possesses powerful truths, personal truths, subjective evaluations of their own well being. And that somehow that needs to be part of, part of medical care, right? They kind of, like you can imagine turning the entire doctor relationship around. Now we go to the doctor and, you say, well, so how am I doing? And the doctor runs a, a number of tests and tells us. But, you know, it probably should be that we go to the doctor. And the doctor asks us, you know, so, you know, how are you doing? And I say, well, you know, today I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm like, okay, so what would we have to do to get you from feeling pretty well to feeling great? Hey, my wife is a nurse practitioner, which, you know, in this country is sort of like, it's, it's an advanced, one of the advanced nursing degrees. And, you go, I mean, she wears a white coat like a doctor would. She writes prescriptions. She does a lot of the same stuff doctors do. But it's interesting. She said what's different is, at being a nurse practitioner, it, it, the nursing model is a little different than the MD, the physician model, in that the, the MD model is, is more pathology-centered, and the nursing model, even in the advanced level, is more person-centered. Hmm. So you're treating a person, hmm. not a pathology. Hmm. And so I think that the great thing about specialists is they're great because they, they can zero in on the pathology, mm. but it's almost like our vices, our virtues become our vices, but you get so mm. good at treating the pathology that you overlook the person. Mm. Uh, and, and so, I mean, right. it's a, a different approach that I think would be, you know, so it's interesting. She spent some time at Thailand in Thailand uh, at a, and when she was doing her master's at Penn or nurse practitioner degree. And she was blown away by the sort of holistic integration there. Mm where you had advanced Western medicine and home and sort of acupuncture and stuff all in the same hospital. Mm. Like, uh, and her nursing eyes were like lighting up, like this is mm. amazing, but, but we just don't do stuff like that here. Yeah. Well, that, that distinction between pathology and person is really interesting because I mean, you look at it in, you know, say American society, Canadian society, British society, what, what are, what are the big causes of disease and death? A lot of it is, um, you know, personal, um, I don't know what the right term is, like personal disease, like, like loneliness, like depression, right? So we're, so we need to be treating the person clearly. Um, and somehow we're missing that in our, in our medicine. So yeah, this, uh, this idea that we've become a know-it-all society, I think is, I, I think that, um, you know, to some extent, uh, social media has kind of been the catalyst for that by, you know, in, in the mass media age, we simplified truths in the social media age. We, we, made it so that everybody could have simple truths. And now we see very clearly how toxic to our society simple truths really are. And, and so, you know, there is this kind of, you know, irony, I guess, about the time we live in, which is that, so now finally we live in a medium that actually supports, you know, a mass collaborative search for truths that are bigger than any one of us. And no one needs it because we've already found the truths that we're looking for. Yeah, when you watch Star Trek, the old Star Trek of the 60s, and Kirk or Spock could just go, computer, tell me about the atmosphere of Mars. You're like, oh my God, what if we could do that? We now have that, and no one really cares. <laughs> right? Like, like, you could just go, hey, Siri, tell me everything about the atmosphere of Saturn. We can do what they could do on Star Trek. And you're right, we, are, we don't find that utterly 
wonderful, literally. Like, it does not make us full of wonder that we have so much access to so much that could give us a fuller, bigger picture of what's outside ourselves. Because mm. we're more interested in what we can make work for ourselves mm. Mm. than something that would get, strike us with awe and wonder. Mm. I'm writing that down. Nice. I like that. <laughs> I feel that. Uh, I feel I feel profound when you write something. Down. So you know, so it boosts my ego. So I think that it, may, it boosts my ego and makes me want to go instrumentalize the truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look how I did that. So I think you know, I we we talked to you know, I guess uh, a month or two ago. Uh, you know, like the strong. So the strong version of the contrarian view is that we should just let social media run amok because you know the the. The truth that is throwing into crisis is a truth that we needed to kind of rid ourselves of and break away from, and and I think I think that I think that's right. Yeah, no, I'm still I'm still with you on that. That there's that there's uh there is this you know basically you know and and sort of this distinction between kind of instrumental or or not. I mean, we can either search for the truth or we can sell it, and you know we got so good at selling the truth. In the mass media age, and then that was what we—that was the truth that we dragged into the social media age with us. And 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 social media, I think, made plain, yeah, how toxic the truth that you can sell, the simplified truth, is to a society because it's totally divisive. We just we don't need to search with one another anymore. And so, you know, and then the, so how, how do we respond? I mean, so part of it, I think there is something structural about really, you know, taking, recognizing the big picture that when we do all these things to, to, um, to crowd sort of the projects of finding proof closer and closer together, you know, when journalistic autonomy and academic autonomy and, and bureaucratic autonomy and all these sources of autonomy, um, are, are reduced and when when the power of different perspectives on reality are kind of you know systematically undermined as less as less real, um, that that helps to um, foster a kind of unhealthy certainty about the simple truths that we each possess. But then that that there is also this kind of you know so there may be something structural, even constitutional, that we can do just in the way that we separate the powers to help separate the proofs. And that's kind of big picture structural stuff for, for, for how we, how we renew society. But I think that there is still this irreducible personal responsibility that, you know, we're going to have to kind of see what social media is trying to tell us that these simple truths are kind of worthless now because, you know, the formula for manufacturing them has been given to everyone. And so everybody uses it. You know, everybody wraps up what they want to be true in in experts and and statistics, uh, and pumps out their own truths to the point where now we've just broken public trust in experts and statistics. Right? So the formula is kind of a contradiction in the sense that now the more you use it, the less anybody, the less it works. Um, but also that the simple truth is self defeating because you're committing all these lies of omission, and all these omissions are. The, the chances for everybody who doesn't like your truth to point at it and say, aha, but you didn't miss nah, 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 and, and gain legitimacy for their alternative. And right. couldn't you say too, that this is just what happens when the truth becomes a consumer good. Like hmm. when you, when you're, I mean, how often do you see a product that's actually being sold as a product? Like 
you, you know, you're being sold when you see some like, you know, these old gap ads where everybody be ice skating and they're having, they're all like these great, you know, like good looking people, you know, near Christmas time. And he's like, wow, if I had that clothes, that clothing, I would be with those good looking people and my, I would feel as good as they look or, or car with a Matthew McConaughey. I'd have that Matthew McConaughey mystique. If I just bought this Cadillac, it's not selling you the product like with Cadillac's got higher reliability than the, you know, and you won't break down. It's selling you a feel of like, it's saying if you did this, it would fill up the lack. Hmm. So the same thing, like I think some of the way we treat the, these simple truths, they're sort of, uh, we peddle it like a consumer good, right? So this is, it's, it's, it, it's, it's not, it's meant to make you feel better. Like, you know, a shirt that won't make you feel better, but like, you know, but it, 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 you think it will because it, it'll give you. So the truth becomes part of this consumer identity construction, like a shirt or a car or the kind of whiskey I drink that looks cool at you know at the end of the bar and a Friday uh, Friday happy hour. Like oh, I dr- I know the right kind of whiskey or this, and you know it, it. It the truth becomes one of those things that just it is accessorizes your consumer self. Hmm. <laughs> truth bomb. <laughs> yeah, we're. Cool. we're I wish we had sound truth. effects. There was this, there was this like Hot ninety seven, this old rap station in New York, and they used to get, um, they used to get these f- f- like feuds. I love these DJ feuds. They'd be like, "Drop that bomb!" And in the background, the guy would go, like, "It was so awesome!" Like, "Drop the bomb!" So yeah, so uh, we should have that sound effect, dude. You're in charge of sound effects. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna put it there. I have a little board. I've never bought one that we could spontaneously. I could hit things and it'd be spontaneously do sound effects. But I, I don't really want to get that technical, but. It's possible. Yeah. This idea of the truth as a consumer good, I think, is good because, yeah. So, so I think that I think that's right. And you know, this is again, you know, my China hat on, looking at how that society, you know, structures the truth engines of society to produce simple truth. And we don't think of it, but we're doing it. We're not in 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 a less coordinated fashion. You know, money has become a kind of dominant logic in many different projects of searching for truth. Um, and, and yeah, the kind of, you know, powers are, are kind of, the, the, there's a whole sort of political economy of truth, right? Um, so there's something structural to be done there. But I think also there's something personal about recognizing that, yeah, you know, we, we, we are holding on to truths like consumer goods and we're, and we're, we're fulfilling certain needs to, you know, certain narcissistic needs to have and hold on to a sense of what is true, to have that validity. Um, yeah, everybody and- wants to become a social media influencer. And so it's almost like, it's not like I have this passion for the truth. I don't want to share that because it's, it's more like, I want to be an influencer. So what's a truth or factoid or something that can make me an influencer? Because then I could get 200,000 followers and then I'd be somebody. Like I, I would feel better about myself, right? Like, but then you won't because then it's like three hundred thousand followers, right? That's like it's sort of like uh, this guy, you know, Rob Bell, when he got got the it's religious guy, he got the cover of Time Magazine. He's like, that was iconic for me. But then you know, what I figured out they put someone else on the cover next week. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how capitalism works, right? You always have to have like, hmm. you always have to have this goalpost that moves, right? So you have to kind of. Hmm. So, so I think that's the personal project, right? That it, 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 if the thinking is that somehow, you know, we basically got two choices now, right? We, in a social media age, so either truth is dead in the sense that, you know, we, we just give up the idea of 
you know, trying to have a truth that is larger than ourselves. And instead, let's just fight to be the loudest and rowdiest gang uh, who sell our truth as the real truth. Uh, and arguably, you know, a lot of us are making that choice, and that's why the populists are winning, right? Yeah, I mean, um, the, the the most positive outcome there would be like we'd become peaceful, disaffected, alienated narcissists. Like, like we'd all just yeah. – we'd let and let and let and let and let and let live. That's the best possible outcome, right? I mean, the worst is that, you know, we'd go back to bloody continents. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, so that's option one, right? We, we just kill off the truth entirely and play the cynical game. And option two, then, is that somehow we resurrect truth, right? Resurrect a truth that is larger than ourselves. Give that ideal real meaning so that we, we, we feel once again sort of – compelled to search together, to, to, to have a humility about the truth that I can possess and to recognize that I need you to get out of my own prison, of my own ways of seeing the world and, and, and glimpse something bigger. And, and what is interesting about that is that in order to do that, it seems that we all have to, at a kind of personal level, um, make a decision to renounce the truths that we already own. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Which is hard. This is uh it's hard. The, I mean, this is indigo girls, right? The hardest to learn is the least complicated, right? It, it, it's not like, it's not complicated. It's just hard. Yeah. Because all the, all the uh, energy, right. Is, is, you know, behind, uh, the consumer kind of view of the, of the small truth. Yeah, I think we just we just don't know how to function if we don't have it. This is a quote from I, I ever since I've read it, I think about it, not every day but every week from a guy named Tomas Halik. He's a Czech Catholic priest who was became a priest when Czechoslovakia was behind the Iron Curtain. He had to do it in secret, and he was also a psychotherapist. And he's talking about Nietzsche's statement: "God is dead," which is kind of a statement that truth is dead, right? In the gay science. And he says, God is dead. That sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was only a sentence of, maybe it was not only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not, is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith of our communication with God who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. I feel like you could just substitute truth for God in that conversation, in that paragraph. And so, so much of what we're talking about, right? This like the part of the quest for truth is these personal and societal crises of the truth, right? Like, you know, that's not opposed to, the search for the truth, but it's, it's a part and parcel of it. Mm. That's really good. I wish, I wish we had this conversation before I started my putting my talk together. We've had several, we've had several, we've had many, we've had many, we'll have many more. It won't be your first Ted talk. It might be your first Ted talk. It won't be your last. I'm sure that that God is dead and truth is dead. And that these are similar, similar. um, What's the word I'm looking for? But but like moments in in human cultural evolution is is coming to terms with that and and I do feel I really do feel that you know so much of the of the um, kind of the the sense of helplessness and powerlessness that a lot of us feel is because we're clinging to the old paradigm 
we're, we're, we're clinging to the kind of mass media truth where the truth was that thing that was curated for us and given to us and, and, you know, and the lies of omission were not broadcast. And so there was a clarity and, and, uh, a certainty and a trustworthiness because there weren't that many messages that could be broadcast in that way. And, and, and now we live in the moment where the exact same thing is being done. The exact same truth is being sold, but by everybody. And the reality is that it, the model doesn't work if we can all sell the truth because that trustworthiness we had, you know, maybe naively was a consequence of there, of, of there only being a couple of people who could curate what got broadcast. You know, there was a consistency to the messages because there was a concentration of, of the broadcast. And, and so I, yeah, I think that we, we do need to kind of recognize, or if we could recognize that, that this kind of helplessness and powerlessness is because we're trying to cling to an old paradigm that of truth that frankly was unworthy of us, that, that was a paradigm of truth for sheep <laughs> and, and really kind of recognize that like, no, 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 no. Like let's not, let's not try to stitch that paradigm off. By like you know regulating social media companies and telling them we got to take better care of the formula, right? Let's let's let it go and let's take this you know this rare moment to to do what Nietzsche did and say like God is fucking dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and it's not to say that there is no room for spirituality, but it's to say we have to we have to begin we have to resurrect the whole search and the whole relationship with that ideal. And, yeah, and because, I think, because the ideal, sorry, now I'm not really right. Because the ideal that we had so carefully preserved, actually, it was unworthy of us. Well, or at least it doesn't help us in the, like, this is like the, what I like about your book, The Age of Discovery, like the Renaissance periods are, we, we sort of, we look at a period like the Renaissance and we romanticize it, but it was as chaotic and disruptive and scary as it was, uh, fruit, fruitful, right? And, there's always a temptation in these disorienting and yet bountiful periods to say, look, you know, this is, uh, this is, uh, this is, uh, the book of Exodus, right? When, when things look tough in, in the wilderness, let's go back to Egypt. It wasn't so bad in Egypt. You know, we got three squares a day. I mean, right, right, right. there's always the temptation to go back to Egypt, right? Like there's always the temptation, you know, which we can't do. I mean, like, you know, you know, the only, uh, the two times we can't live in, right? Mm. Yesterday and tomorrow. We can live in today, right? And so, mm. <laughs> and so we can't, you know, we, that's not an option to, mm. uh, you know, there were great things about the sort of mass media culture. You know, it brought us together in certain ways that are interesting. And yet you're right. There, there are deficiencies that, you know, our virtues are always our vices, right? And so mm. some, some evolving in media and technology and culture shows that, you know, now it, it it's it's just not it's not fitting anymore. It's like, it's like if the you know it'd be strange. You know, remember when the space shuttles would launch and the booster rockets? Like once it would get out of the solar system, out of, out of the atmosphere, the booster rockets would be cast off, right? And was that because they were worthless? No, but it's somehow it'd be strange after they were cast off if we saw the astronauts in their in their spacesuits trying to get them back onto the shuttle because they're not for that time anymore, right? Mm-hmm. The shuttles out of out of the and so I think some of the uses of that old paradigm were. It's not like it's not like they weren't contributions to some the part of the journey, but we can't go back and put them on the shuttle. <laughs> it's not possible, dude. That's a that's a cool metaphor. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, it's what I had. It's what I got today. It's Thursday morning. It's what I got. That's good. Maybe you can fit that into your sermon for this Sunday. I could. I might have used that before. I'm trying to think if I have. Mm-hmm.
I might not have. I'm not I, sure. I, 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 I think that people could appreciate that. You know, yeah, just, space it, Although not, now, yeah, people, there's still enough people. Time anymore, yeah. So that'll be like there'll be like a in a couple decades that analogy will be useless because nobody will know what space shuttles are anymore. But hmm. that was a big deal, the shuttle when it was. Yeah, when it was a when it was a deal. Yeah, interesting. You know, so I I remember visiting. Um, I guess it was last year. I was in Houston. Uh, went to the I guess the Johnson Space Center. Yeah, yeah. In in Houston, and they've got like a like a full scale. I guess it was like a training model of the shuttle big in real life. Um, one thing that was so interesting is that the shuttle was like from a pre-digital age. And so in the cockpit, you know, instead of like now you would just have screens where like touch screens where, you know, like the, the, the menu of options would update like on your phone on, on the shuttle. You couldn't do that. You had to have a physical switch for every little thing that you wanted to be able to command it to do. And so you're just in this cockpit and there's like a billion switches. That's like the, the, the Star Trek as the Star Trek evolves, like they're like the old Star Treks look looked with switches. Now everything's like in the new Star Trek show is like touch screens. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it, or or even it's not even a screen, it's just like a holographic it's, Yeah, it's a menus. holographic display in the air and yeah. Somehow. God, I can't wait till we get those. Mm. Well, I guess we're not that far because there's no. already like the HoloLens that you can wear. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, that's pretty interesting stuff. So yeah, I think that that is part like fundamentally there is this kind of um, courage that's required to to be willing to assert that God is dead and to trust that, you know, as much as that assertion is inviting a project to, um, to create something new, it is also a project to hold on to what is worth preserving. Yeah. Because it is, you know, fundamentally to say God is dead, it is it is a it is a spiritual project. Even to I mean, I love that, that phrase. In. If if God, who he says, a God that incapable of death is not fully alive. Like if the truth can't die, is it really fully alive in a world that's finite and fragile? Hmm. And there's no resurrection without death. Yeah. So I think I think that that's where we should leave it. That that I you know I. <sighs> Somehow we've got to grapple with that. This is the choice we face. Yeah, is, is we, yeah. we kill off the truth entirely, or we resurrect it. And and either way, I mean, I I think that you know if we kill off the truth entirely, I guess you know, as you say, like the worst case scenario. Well, best case scenario is we all become narcissists. I think worst case scenario is we kill off democracy. Yeah, because it could like, be worse than that. It could be worse than that. Yeah, could be, <laughs> well, yeah, it could be it could be worse than that too. That would be a middle range of options. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but imagine if we could, oh, I would love to live in a world where we, where we, where like the most, uh, the most popular conversations on Twitter are the ones asking questions. Yeah. I'm going to do that when we stop. When we, when we finish this recording, I'm going to tweet this out and say, how, when was the last big Twitter thread you got involved in that was, that began with a really good, honest question? Hmm. I'm going to ask and see if anybody, how anybody yeah. replies. Well, thank you, my friend. No, thank you. When is your TED Talk? What day? Uh, it's uh, 24th of September. 12 days. Can we, is it live streamed or this? Do I this don't think live? it's live streamed. I think they kind of actually gets taped and, and, and hacked and edited and all sorts okay. of torturous. So we'll only see the edited version. Yeah, that's right. Assuming, that's I, I think there is some kind of like further, I don't think every single talk that happens on the stage, they actually decide to put up. 
I would love to be there with you because I think it's I think you'd be fun to watch and hang out there with. But well, thank you. For I'll your be help. there with. I'll be there with you in spirit. Thank you for your help developing the ideas. Oh, I've, I love it. Yeah. This is fun. Great. Well, thank you, my friend. Yeah, all right. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.